0: And today, folks, we are rewinding back to Episode 855, Understanding Caliber, Millimeter, Gauges, and Ballistics from March the 8th, 2012. As we start out today, I want to let you know why we're doing a rewind today. It's uh, President's Day. The kids are out of school. That means my wife is off. Uh, We're going to spend some time together. She just, you know, worked her butt off helping me out at the Mother Earth News Festival down in Belton, Texas. The other thing, though, is she does have to go run some errands this morning. That gives me a little bit of time to get this up. But what it also lets me do is put everything back together. I took the vertical farm down there, and it's in pieces in the garage now. And I learned something about hydroponic vegetables. Number one, if you – I learned some things. Here's what I learned. Number one, if you give a person hydroponic vegetables to eat that thinks that hydroponic vegetables are not going to be really flavorful, their entire mind is blown when they taste it. The number one thing that I I handed out down there, and I wish I would have grown more of it. I I didn't realize it was going to be as good as it was. was the wasabi arugula we talked about recently. That little plant alone, you'd hand that to a person and their eyes would bulge out of their head, both with like kind of, man, also like, wow, that does taste like wasabi. I had to make sure I asked people, do you like wasabi before I did that? Some of the mustard, some of the other Asian things like the Asian celery and stuff. Man, people really were kind of blown away with uh, how amazing this stuff is. And so I learned that. I also learned that uh, when you transport hydroponic vegetables and put them back into a hydroponic system in the back of a truck, they're not real happy with you. So I have got to get that system back together so I can take all the stuff from my seed starting system upstairs and plug it in and, like, have fresh vegetables again. Basically, I fed everybody now as much as I could. The stuff that came back, really, it needs to go to the ducks. So I got to get that back together. I got some stuff to clean up around here. And uh, I just need a day of recovery, honestly. I need to rest my voice. Uh, doing a trade show for two days, doing two presentations, you know, that that kind of wears you out. So Dorothy is always being the wise one out of us when it comes to like throttling back my work. I said, do a rewind today. So I said, yeah, you're right, honey. Uh, now, why I, partic- I picked this particular one. So I realized we haven't done a lot on guns lately, and uh we have a new great expert council member we brought on a few months ago, J.R. Haley, who takes your gun questions. And I thought, you know what? We'd get more questions for JR if you did some more gun content. And I was already thinking that, and then last week somebody made a comment about a little video that I shared on Facebook. It wasn't my video, somebody else's video. And it was a uh forty five seventy lever action and Marlin. I had the barrel down, shortened down to uh sixteen inches and it had been ported, and it kind of been tacticoled a little bit. And by that I mean, like, it wasn't overdone. It wasn't overdone, but it didn't look like your typical lever-action uh, weapon. It had a forearm that had uh, a place where you could mount things. It had a red dot on it. It had a pretty nice open sight system as well, but the guy was using the red dot. And one of the guys said, but that round is inherently inefficient, especially in a short barrel like that. And I was like, God, I need to talk about how amazing the forty five seventy is in in so many ways. And how versatile that round is. And I was thinking about that. I went, you know, maybe a whole show called the, the Awesome 4570 might not be a great show, but like if you did like five underrated rifle cartridges, I used to do shows like that, and you you'd look for cartridges that were similar, in the way people underappreciate them, maybe one of the 4570, you also talk about the 45 Colt, would be another example of a round that people see as old and outdated, but if it's loaded right in the right gun, it is a sledgehammer. I can take the 4570, do reloading with it, put it in a Ruger number one, and I can be 300 feet per second away from a 458 wind mag. I'm not saying I want to shoot it that way very often. I'm just saying that you're talking about some of these old rounds from the 1800s that have the ability to be as, as powerful as you want them to be. They also, because they're from a, a, a time when things were not what they are today with technology. And they were originally designed to be loaded with you know, black powder. The original load velocity, so if you don't know what that word means or whatever in relation to bullets and guns and cartridges, don't worry, that's what today's episode is about. That's why we're doing it. That's why I'm telling you this right now. But if we load, even using modern propellants, to the pressures and the velocities of the time that they came from, they're very mild to shoot, especially in heavier weapons. And they're still damn lethal. If you doubt the lethality of the 4570, I'm going to ask you something really simple here. How many buffalo have you seen ranging the United States lately? That is the round that killed all the buffalo. And if you can kill a buffalo, a deer is no trouble. So I was like, I want to do some of these. And I want to maybe do, like I did one a long time ago, uh, a show on, on, on guns, where I talked about some cartridges that were honestly, in many ways, better than the Magnums of today. And they all had cult followings, and they were all not quite so popular. They were around like the 7mm 08, the 65 by 55 mm Swede, the 33806, the 35 Whalen. And there was a certain formula with something called sectional density. And the muzzle velocity being moderate, but, you know, significant, and a certain weight of the bullet. And I was like, I want to do some shows like that again, maybe some different takes on that. And when I was thinking about doing a rewind, then I'm like, you know, if you run the old episode 855 on caliber, millimeter, gauges, and ballistics, when you do these shows, you can say, hey, look, hopefully you just heard this rewind. If you did, I don't have to re explain all this stuff, and I can just focus on the content. And since it'll be a very new rewind anyway, and we can just point people back to it, it's commercial free. You can say, hey, if you're struggling with any of the terminology in today's show, we just did a rewind, and it's episode 120, 128 rewind, and you can look it up, you can listen to that, and it'll all make sense. So it was, this was kind of a strategic pick. It wasn't just, oh, this was a good show. This was a tr- strategic pick, because as much as I love all the homesteading and stuff and all, there's there's a huge... enthusiasm enthusiasm for guns and weapons in this community, and I share it with you. I am more the guy that wants to talk about the Lever Action 357 than the AR. I have the AR. I love the AR. The AR does what the AR does. But when it comes to really connecting with our heritage, some of these rounds I'm going to want to talk about, the show I'm going to do tomorrow, are really amazing, and they offer some really interesting advantages, especially for someone that also wants to get into reloading. So, with that in mind, let's go ahead, folks, and rewind back all the way to March the eighth, twenty twelve, almost eight years ago. Originally, episode eight hundred and fifty five: Understanding Caliber, Millimeter Ballistics, and Gages. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway Seven Ridge Line from TSPN—that's the Survival Podcast Network headquarters, also known as the Ant Hill. Because this is where we are prepared, folks. We help you prepare. Now, part of preparedness is being able to defend yourself, and in some situations being able to put meat on the table. So being able to use firearms uh, it comes in critically there, whether it's busting bunnies, uh, shooting deer, or uh, protecting yourself from large, two-legged, 180-pound rats trying to get into your house. And to do that, we need to be able to train with guns, we need to understand guns, we need to respect but not fear them and we need to be able to go out and expand our collection of firearms uh, to do whatever it is that we want to do i believe that everybody should have at least a basic four gun battery consisting of a rimfire rifle a 22 uh for training and for small game a center fire handgun all this stuff's going to make sense if it doesn't by the end of the day but a good defense handgun uh, I also believe everybody should have a good shotgun and a good center fire rifle, rifle capable of taking mid to large, mid size to large game. So you're looking at something capable of taking deer size to elk size game. Okay? And if you're going to do that, the problem is that. Marketing has gone absolutely insane on its face in the firearms industry, and there's quote-unquote new stuff coming out every day because instead of like trying to really improve the gun, the platform, manufacturers have gone to having the next latest, greatest cartridge uh, around, whatever you want to call it, that's going to sell, that's going to sizzle, that's going to get them the front page of Guns and Ammo magazine. And the reality is a lot of these new improvements and and what have you are just new spins on old things. That will make sense too today. Today's show is called Understanding Caliber, Millimeter, Gauges, and Ballistics. So what I've got is a lot of people asking me to do a show so that when I talk about guns and I start throwing out some numbers and names and things like that, it doesn't get confusing. So that's what we're going to do today. And for those of you that think, well, I already know this stuff. I mean, I, I've been doing this my whole life. I want you to remember there was a time when you didn't, and that you're probably going to work with and deal with people that don't understand this stuff. And just because you know something doesn't mean you know how to teach it well. So I'm hoping the experienced person will glean from this episode metaphors and analogies that will help you be a better teacher when you're training, and the new person will become uh, enlightened enough that two things will happen. One, when they go to a sporting goods store and the guy behind the counter professes to know what he's talking about and 99 times out of 100 he's a dumb, 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 dumbass. I wanted to, I had to stop myself. I wanted to use a word that Paul Wheaton uses on this show but I don't and it starts with an F and ends with a K. He's a dumb one of those. And most of them are and they say really dumb stuff all the time. And I want you to be able to de- determine that. And when you're around a group of people talking about this stuff, I don't want you to feel like they're talking in a foreign language anymore. Uh, so it, it would be analogous to, the even if you don't want to learn to shoot or whatever, but you just want to be able to understand these discussions, the wife that sits and watches football with her husband and his buddies once in a while and doesn't get the game and doesn't understand all the terminology, if she understood the terminology, she might actually enjoy the conversation and the game. So And sometimes it's the guy not to be sexist there, right? So that's the goal today. So let's get into today's topic. And really, like, right there I realized I was going off on you with some terminology. And I just decided not to change the tempo of the show and go with my outline. Because that terminology sometimes, I think, is what trips people up. So I have gotten... I'd say no less than two or three dozen emails since I put out and said, I want to do more shows on firearms, tell me what you want to hear. And the, the general speak goes something like this. Jack, can you do a very basic style show that explains what all these calibers and rounds mean? Sometimes when you're talking about firearm subjects, I'm fine, and then you start saying something like the thirty eight Special is thirty five caliber, and I just don't get it, or that a forty Smith & Weston is equivalent to a 10 millimeter when you put it in a carbine. None of this makes sense. Please help. And as I was saying at the beginning, often I feel that those of us who grew up reading gun magazines and shooting our entire lives forget how long it took for us to actually know what we know. And it's just so easy for us to just assume this stuff is simple. Anybody can learn this. And we don't realize that, you know, a lot of us, like me, I was a kid, I would sit down with ballistics tables. And I would look at all the rounds, and I would see, you know, what's their energy? What's their trajectory? And I would study things, and I would get reloading manuals, and I would study things like sectional density and ballistic coefficient, and those sound like, you know, Poindexter uh, mathematical words. And they kind of are, because the formulas to arrive at them are really complicated, but understanding what they are, what they mean, and how to interpret them for a basic uh, concept so that you know what it means is actually really easy. But the first thing I think we have to do if we're going to demystify this for the person that's not sure about what the heck's going on here, and a lot of these questions, as you try to explain the answer, if you don't start at the basic building blocks of what a cartridge or a round actually is, then when you're explaining it, it's kind of like trying to teach somebody algebra before they've learned times tables and division and addition and subtraction. Does it matter what this you know this this common variable is if we don't even understand one plus two being three? And the, the equivalent to one plus two being three in the ballistics world is what is a cartridge? What is a bullet? What is a case? And what happens when we pull the trigger and it goes bang? What's actually going on there? So the components that make up a rifle cartridge or a handgun cartridge. In general, there are some exceptions to this, and I'll get to those in a bit. So, don't nitpick me, you experienced guys. You've got a case or a cartridge casing, which is the part that when you're done shooting, and you, if it's a semi-auto or a fully auto, it ejects itself and lands on the ground next to your feet, or you work the action or open it and you remove it, it's still there. That's the case. That's what holds everything together until you shoot. If you look in the center of at least a centerfire case, you'll see a little round thing. And before you put it in the gun, it looks flat. And when you pull it out of the gun and you look at it, it's got a dimple in it. That is the primer. That is the little explosive charge that ignites the gunpowder. So when that hammer falls and hits that primer, uh, it sets off a little explosion. And there's gunpowder, we call smokeless powder today, and back in the day it was Black powder, which is different, and we'll get to that in a minute as well, and why it's created some confusion even up till now with certain things. And when that little explosion goes off, it immediately triggers the gunpowder, the larger explosion to go off, and then a tremendous amount of pressure. If you can imagine, if we take a little bit of gunpowder and put it on a table and we light it on fire, it flares up for a second and goes out, and it's not really that impressive. But if we take it and we put it inside something and set it off, we get an explosion because the pressure is able to build up inside of the round. Now, if this was completely sealed up with no weak point, no designed weak point, we would get a catastrophic failure. It would literally turn into a tiny bomb and blow in all different directions. But that's not how the cartridge is designed. At the top of the cartridge, when you look at it, the piece that goes through the barrel and goes down and hits and and, and damages something, whether it knocks a target over or goes through the lungs of a deer or ends up in the chest of a bad guy and puts them on the ground outside of your home uh, while you wait for the police to come clean up the mess instead of prevent the crime, that is the bullet. So when you hear something, when somebody on on TV says they found bullets at the scene of the crime, they usually mean they found cartridge casings at the scene of the crime because the the perpetrator was an amateur and used something like a semi-auto and left his casings behind, unless they actually found the slugs like embedded in a body or embedded in a wall. And that's why a lot of times people that are informed get kind of angry at the media because they're so anti-gun in so many ways, yet they have complete ignorance to these basic facts. So that's why sometimes, when ladies, when you're sitting with your husband and there's a news report on, and it might not be that particular example, but they're reporting a shooting or something like that, and they throw out a couple terms, and your husband gets all mad and red-faced, and he wants to throw the remote at the TV, this is why he's angry if you're the less informed spouse in this. So that's starting to understand each other, right? So there's some little marriage therapy going on here. Let him be mad. He has a reason, even if you don't understand what it is. Uh, and vice versa, if the guy's the uninformed party. Again, not to be sexist here, it's just I've seen a preponderance the other way. So when you pull the trigger, that's the whole dynamics that go on. The primer sets off a small explosion. That sets off a larger explosion in the smokeless powder. Pressure builds up and sends the round down the barrel in most instances, with very few exceptions today, that barrel has something called rifling in it. And those are little grooves. If you make sure your weapon is safe and look down the barrel with a light at one end so you can see it, you'll see grooves and you'll see them twist. So that bullet is pushed down that barrel and it's spun the way a quarterback spins a football when he throws it. Now, if you've ever watched a person that can't throw a football well, and you see that ball just kind of going through the air without any rotation on it, it loses stability and it doesn't go very far. And then you watch somebody that knows how to throw a football and part that spin on it, the the ball is much more accurate, it can go much further, even if the same amount of physical effort, the same amount of thrust is applied to the ball, you get greater aerodynamics. That's why we rifle the barrels. Now before I go forward, I want to talk about, because it's going to be important later on to understand what the hell I'm talking about when I bring up something called a healed bullet, which is kind of an archaic technology, what is rimfire versus centerfire? A rimfire cartridge works exactly like I just described, except there is no primer, there is what's called a primer paste, or a primer media and when you look at the the back of the case, okay, so the part that when you stick it in the gun, you can look down and see it where the hammer is going to fall, you don't see the little round primer in the middle. You just see a flat case. A 22 long rifle would be the most common thing that you could look at and see rim fire. So when you hear 22 rim fire, that's what they're talking about. Now how this differs, instead of having a little primer, which was eventually developed because now we could reload the cartridge, because we can knock the old primer out. Put a new primer in, stick some powder in the cartridge, put a bullet in the end of the cartridge, crimp it, and stick it in the gun and shoot it again. Now, I've oversimplified that cuz today's show's not on reloading, but that's the basics of reloading. There's things like resizing resurg- the cartridge and some other stuff and you know measuring the powder and using the right components, but that's basically it. In the beginning, when they first started going over from muzzle loaders and black powder with flintlocks and percussion muskets, to something that was actually a cartridge. Initially, it was just the bullet and the powder and paper, and then we had a, what's called a percussion cap. Now, that percussion cap looks an awful lot like a primer, and you'd shove that into your, your gun, and there's some other breech loaders that did something similar. You'd pull a hammer back, and there's a thing called a nipple there. And you'd take that nipple, and you, you'd stick this, this cap, just almost like a cap gun cap, on top of there, except it was made out of metal. You'd pull a hammer back, and when you pulled it, it would hit that cap, the charge would go through and ignite the gunpowder charge, the black powder charge in this case, and project around down the range. Well, somebody along the way said, we're almost there. Here's what we can do. We can make a metal case instead of a paper case. You don't have to cut the back of the, the case off anymore. And we'll put some stuff, we'll call priming compound, at the bottom of that case. And we'll stick some black powder in there. We'll shove a bullet in there. We'll stick that in a gun and we'll see what happens. And the modern uh, cartridge was born except that it was mostly done with a rimfire technology. Because back in the, those days, the, the, the concept today of mass production is a lot further along, and it took a while for them to go to a place where they were going to put that little primer in the center. The other thing is, black powder kind of needs to be in contact with something to go off, or smokeless powder will be set off a lot easier. So old black powder and black powder equivalents, like something called Pyradex, is a black powder, modern black powder equivalent, need to be much more in contact with what's ever igniting it than smokeless powder. So if you pick up a smokeless powder, which is any modern cartridge, and pick it up off the shelf and shake it, a lot of times, most of the time, you'll hear the powder moving around in there. Where a lot of the old black powder cartridges had to be loaded either to capacity, which means you can't fit any more in, okay, or you had to put a wadding in there so that there was a piece of paper or cotton between the bullet and the powder to keep the powder up against the back of the case because it took more to ignite it. So one way that you could minimize this is instead of having that little primer in the center, when they were first trying to figure out how to make this work, was just to put paste all over the inside of the the head of the case and then if the if the thing was hit anywhere along its rim, it would ignite all of the primer, which would be in touch with some of the powder, which gave better ignition. And then we came into the ability to create a firearm that would be called a repeating arm. The first lever action uh, rounds, and the, the uh, there was some other stuff that were single shot. There were breech loaders that did this. Eventually, it led into bolt actions. By then, we were moving into that center fire world. But the only thing you really need to take away from all that history. Is that a center fire has a primer in the middle and a rim fire had paste along the rim. And almost all the old rim fire stuff, unless somebody kept it around as a collectible, is gone except the 22. Okay? So that's center fire versus rim fire. The 22 long rifle, the 22 magnum, the 22 short, the 22 long. All of those, and I'm not going to go into the differences between them today because that could be a whole show just on 22 rim fire. But all of those are rim fire rounds. And almost everything else that you'll put your hands on today is going to be a centerfire round unless it's some piece of history that somebody has preserved. Got it? Okay. Next thing, what is caliber? When you hear caliber, 25 caliber, 30 caliber, uh, 45 caliber, what does that mean? It is a measurement in inches. And when we say something is 9 millimeter caliber, that's not really correct. It's really nothing wrong. It's like debating whether you call something a clip or a magazine. There's a right answer, but it really doesn't matter. Okay, And I'll have you guys to get upset when some dude on YouTube is reviewing his rifle and calls his magazine a clip. You need to find a life. You really do, because it's not that important. But it's interesting to understand the difference, and it's interesting to be able to explain the difference. In that case, I'm going to let that one go, because it's really... a Pain in my ass. I think it's people critiquing people because they have nothing better to do, and they usually don't do anything with their lies. Uh, but when we talk about caliber, really it is a measurement in inches, and it's a fraction of an inch in the case of you know most uh, most rifles or handguns. So when you hear something that is thirty caliber, it's .30 of an inch, or a roughly a third. A Thirty-three caliber would truly be a third of an inch, thirty percent of an inch, twenty-five caliber. Is 0.25 of one inch. That's all that it is. 22 caliber, 0.22 of one inch. So a 25 caliber round is a quarter inch in diameter. A 50 caliber round would be a half of an inch in diameter, and everything else somewhere and some variable in between. Millimeters is the diameter of the round in millimeters. So a nine millimeter is nine millimeters in diameter. It's really the same thing, but caliber typically denotes a reference to inches. So if something's nine millimeter caliber, it's not really accurate. But yet, if you say caliber is nine millimeter, then you're saying the, the you're kind of doing a metric conversion there. And this is where all kinds of confusion comes in because there's a reason that I started out uh, explaining to you how a cartridge works, so that you would understand that there's there's multiple components: powder, primer, case, and bullet. And when we get to the bullet, many cartridges that have great differences are the same caliber and might be firing the exact same bullet. The place where it all piles up on top of each other in the handgun world, anyway, is 38 Special, uh, 357 Magnum, the 380, and 9mm. They're all the same. Now, the cartridges aren't the same, and that does not mean, again, it does not mean you can take 380s and throw them in your 38, because the cartridge is designed well, differently. One has a rim, and the other is what we would call a rimless or semi-rimless cartridge, depending on which ones we're talking about. So, we start looking at what things are and are not interoperable. And most of the time, the answer is none, but sometimes the answer is a few. So, for instance, if I have a 357 Magnum, I can put 38 specials in there and shoot that with no problem whatsoever. It's like a light 357 Magnum load. Effectively, that's what it is. But if I have a 38 special, I cannot put 357 Magnum in there. One reason is when they made the 357, they realized the pressure, remember the pressure builds up, was too high. And that if somebody stuck one of those into a 38 Special and pulled the trigger, they might blow themselves up or at least damage the gun. So they made the case just a little bit longer so that it won't work in a 38 Special revolver. That's not to say some fool couldn't figure out a way to to, to finagle it and get it to work. But the reality is there's enough case capacity in the 38 Special to push it to 357 loadings. They didn't add that little bit extra so much to fit more powder in there. They added it so commercial manufacturers could load these higher pressure loads and sell them without worrying about being sued by somebody who didn't understand the difference and shoved one into the other versus the other way around. But this is the big question that always comes up. Well, if the 38 Special and the 357 Magnum are the same, what caliber are they? Are they 35 caliber or are they 38 caliber? And the answer is they're both .357 or 35 caliber, and that is equivalent to a 9mm. Now you say, now how the heck does that happen? And here's how it works. We go back to black powder and rimfire and something called the 38 long Colt. And when we used to have those rimfire rounds, they used what was called a healed bullet. And if you take a modern centerfire round today and you look at it, and you look at the outside of the cartridge you'll see that the bullet is smaller in diameter than the, the outside dimensions of the cartridge. And this might be something, I'll put a link to a wiki article on this where you can look at it, and seeing this might make it more sense. If you take a twenty two long rifle, though, and you look at it, the outside diameter of the bullet lines up perfectly with the outside of the cartridge case. There's no instep. So... To get that to work, obviously the inside of the cartridge uh, casing, if we look at it like a tube, the outside of the tube is bigger than the inside of the tube because there's a wall there, and that wall is the variance. So a heeled bullet, the bullet would come down at 38 caliber in these .38 uh, long colts, and then it would step down to fit inside the case. And the inside of that case was 35 caliber. But the the, the outside dimensions of the projectile going down the barrel were 38 caliber, so they called it a 38 caliber. When it evolved into center fire and they stopped using these healed bullets, a lot of these things were very well-known brands, if you want to call them at the time. The case's dimensions didn't change. The bullet became slightly smaller because instead of being healed, it was straight-walled. Okay, And then it went inside the case instead of abutting the outside dimensions of the case. So if if that doesn't make sense, and I'm sorry, I'm doing the best I can with audio only here, when you look at the picture in the show notes, everything I just said will make perfect sense. So what happened is they went to these same dimension cartridges and they came up with things like the thirty eight special. They went away from healed bullets, but they knew if they called it the three fifty seven special, nobody would get what it was and it wouldn't sell well. So they kept the name thirty eight, even though the bullet diameter shrunk to thirty five. And that causes all the confusion that people have around that one. But what's more important to understand, I think, is that for every caliber, there's a metric equivalent in millimeters. Just like for every uh, standard measurement we have in America, inches uh, or gallons or yards, right? So with that, we would have millimeters, and we have liters, and we have meters, right? So it's just a conversion process. So when you hear something like, 7.62 7.62 millimeter, and you hear things like the 7.62 millimeter NATO round, and you hear people say it's roughly the same thing as a 308 Winchester with some variances we won't get in today. They're right because it's a 7.62 millimeter in 30 caliber are the same. 20 caliber is this? I'm sorry, 25 caliber is the same as 6.35 millimeters. Uh twenty-four caliber is the same as six millimeters. So when, and I don't want to throw too many numbers at you, I just want you to understand that there's there's just everything has a conversion. 40 caliber is 10 millimeter. They just happen to work out where they're both even. So let's look at a couple things and understand some things about this. When you hear something like a very common carry caliber today for people to carry in mostly semi-automatic handguns, is the 40 Smith and Wesson. Okay? So the 40 caliber Smith and Wesson has a 10 millimeter bullet that comes out the end of its cartridge. It's not that one is right and one is wrong, it's which system are you using to give the measurements. And Smith and Wesson decided that 40 Smith and Wesson sounded better than 10 millimeter Smith and Wesson. Now, this is where people get confused when I talk about equivalencies, longer barrels and what happens when we put a handgun cartridge Into a carbine. So a carbine, let's say, with a 16-inch barrel is going to perform dramatically different with the same round in it because the pressure has longer to do its job. So if we take something like a 40 Smith & Wesson and we put it in a 5-inch barrel... Only so much of that powder will fully burn, and that's why in handguns they say use faster powders because they're trying to get the pressure curve up as quickly as possible before that slug comes out the end of that barrel. And that's why when you see people shoot handguns, especially at night, the shorter the barrel, the bigger the muzzle flash. The longer the barrel, the less the muzzle flash because more of the powder is able to completely burn because it's part of the ejecta mass too. It's part when that goes off. It's not just a bullet going down there. The powder, even as it's igniting, is expanding and following the path of least resistance down the barrel as well. So when we take something like a 357 Magnum and put it into a rifled barrel, or a uh, a 40 Smith and Wesson and put it into a rifled barrel, we get a longer period of time where that pressure is acting on the projectile before it exits. So it comes out at a higher velocity. So when I say a 40 Smith and Wesson shot out of a carbine like the Sub-2000, which is a Caltech uh, gun, folding Caltech carbine, is equivalent to a 10 millimeter, it's because the bullet's the same bullet. And the bullet is now moving at a much higher velocity. And it's, a, it's not equivalent to a 10 millimeter in that carbine. It doesn't mean you can interchange the rounds. What it means is the projectile itself is traveling with the same speed and force as if 10 millimeters shot out of a 5-inch barrel. And how do we know that? We look at ballistics charts. And we say, okay, what? how many grains? And grains is the weight that bullets are measured in. How many grains is this bullet? What caliber is this bullet? And all things being equal, velocity then becomes what makes one more effective than the other. And you can see this dramatically with something like the 22 long rifle. Um, I have a new gun that I'm I'm having a lot of fun with made by GSG, German company and it's a 1911 that shoots 22 long rifles 5 inch barrel, so it's standard 22 rimfire and I shoot that uh, the other day I had some uh, 3 quarter inch wood that was left over uh, pressure treated lumber left over from a project that I had done, I set those up and put some little sticker targets on them and started shooting it, and at a range of about 25 yards from this 5 inch barrel Uh, those rounds were not fully penetrating. So they were staying in the board. They are hitting the board and staying in the board. Pick up my Ruger 10-22, same round, exact same manufacturer, Remington Thunderbolts, put it in the Ruger uh, 10-22, which is a rifle with, I think it's got an 18-inch barrel, and shoot it, and I get full penetration. Same round, same bullet, same everything. The only difference is the length of the barrel, so I get a higher velocity... So I end up with greater penetration. All right, we're going to get into penetration in just a bit. We start talking about what actually does the killing. There's one more thing I want to throw in here before we go on, because this confuses people as well. What is a gauge? Because all of a sudden we go from talking about handguns and rifles to shotguns, and now we're at 12 gauge. And 12 is bigger than 20. And, and, and 16 is between 20 and 12, but it's small. And all of a sudden everything is flipped upside down. Right, Everything's backwards, right? Because 24 is smaller than 30 in the caliber world. You know, 9mm is smaller in diameter than 10mm in the the caliber world. And now all of a sudden everything's backwards. Well, where the hell does that come from? I'm going to give you two answers, and the one is the technically right one, and the other one's probably the easier way to understand it. If you go to the hardware store, this is the easy way, and you get 10-gauge wire and you get, 50 gauge wire. The 50 gauge wire is much thinner than the 10 gauge wire, and it works the same way. Gauge: the lower the number, the thicker the object is. Where the actual terminology comes from? How did they come? Why did they decide that it's 12 gauge? Um, It was based on a round ball, and with a shotgun instead of that rifling. Unless it's a specialized shotgun, we have a smooth tube, and then we have choke constriction at the end. But basically, the tube itself, we have a standard diameter of that tube. And if we take a round ball and a perfectly round sphere and say what, what ball will fit inside that, that barrel, and then we weigh that ball, whatever fraction of a pound it is, that's the gauge. So a 12-gauge barrel, if you put a perfectly round spherical ball in there made of pure lead and weigh it, will be one-twelfth of a pound, okay? So then if we do it with a 20 gauge, it will be 1 20th of a pound. So 1 12th is bigger than 1 20th. That's how gauges work. That's the whole thing. So a 10 gauge, bigger diameter than a 12th, 1 10th of a pound. Round ball would fit in there. Got it? All the way up until we get to 410. And then we call it a 410 bore. It's not a gauge. And we'll just let that go and say, think of it like .410 caliber today. It's not exactly true, but it would be too complicated to explain, but it's an aberration. It goes, goes kind of off in left field on its own. Somebody came up with it and thought 410 bore sounded better than figuring out the gauge which I believe if you figured out the gauge would be somewhere in the 60s or something like that, if I remember from one of those useless Jeopardy! knowledge things that I've managed to finally forget. Um, So there you go. There's your gauge. Your gauge is just the diameter of the tube in the shotgun based on a relationship of a round ball to one pound and what its fraction is. So that's totally different than caliber. Now, what I actually want to try to get across to you today is when someone is hit with a bullet, or an animal is hit with a bullet, what actually does the killing? There is a total misunderstanding about what's called kinetic energy, or the, the force delivered into the target uh, when the round hits. So if I punch you, you'll feel it, and it go, and, and some of the energy is transmitted into your body, and you feel an impact on the surface, and you also, your body is shoved backwards, and you probably feel something internally is it disturbs your internal organs. Let's say if I punch you in the stomach and it hurts, it doesn't just hurt on the surface, it hurts inside. So the energy is distributed, some along the outside, some along the inside. And that is an easy way to understand kinetic energy. So when you see that a round delivers 4,000 foot-pounds of energy in a ballistics chart, that's kind of what it's saying. It's not really, but it's enough to understand the basics. But that's not what does the killing, and yet it is. And there's two schools of thought on this, and we're not going to get deep into that today either, because that could go on for half an hour. But the purist says it's the penetration that does the killing. So if the round doesn't go in, unless it's something really huge, like a car, uh, the kinetic energy won't kill you. So in other words, if you're standing in Iraq... And you're wearing a ballistic suit with a with a chest plate, you know, ballistic armor chest plate in it, and somebody snipes you from hundred yards away with an AK forty seven, a seven six two round, right, which is thirty caliber, uh standard SKS AK forty seven round, a lot of bad guys are shooting at our guys over there with, and that round hits him right in the middle of the chest and that ballistics plate. Usually the guy gets hit knocks him down and he's like he's alive and he's really not that hurt. So the kinetic energy didn't do any of the killing because the round didn't go inside. There was no penetration. Mm, sort sorta, of, kinda. Of. We'll get to how this works out and where a lot of the misunderstandings and the stupidity comes from, from the guy behind the counter explaining the difference to you between a 38 special and a 9mm and a 380 and says stupid things like, well with the 380 you have to be really precise with your shots. We'll get to it, okay? So anyway, we need the penetration to allow the kinetic energy to do damage to surrounding tissue. If it's only on the surface, then the people that say kinetic energy has nothing to do with the killing power of a round are sort of kind of right. But as soon as we put penetration and we start to dump that energy through the body, things start to change. And tissue that's not actually impacted by the round can be severely damaged. So it's not unusual at all to shoot a 30 caliber bullet, that expands to maybe let's say 45, 50 caliber, because when the bullet hits, it begins to become disturbed and it expands, but goes all the way through a, a deer. So the biggest the bullet ever was is about let's say uh, 45, 50 caliber, a half inch, about as big around as your thumb. And you open that deer up, and the lungs are jelly; they're just gone. I mean, they just spill out. Well, how did that happen? When that round penetrated it also began to dump its energy into the target. And it created a shock tunnel where, as it went through, it wasn't just what was impacted, but the surrounding tissue was damaged by the shock value. So when somebody says something stupid like, well, if you use a full metal jacket round, it can just pencil through a deer, the reality is that's just nonsense. If I took a 30 caliber wooden dowel with a point on it, and I shoved it through both of your lungs and pulled it out the other side, you're not going very far. At best, you're going as far as you can hold your breath and tolerate the pain before you fall over and bleed out and die. If I put a hole through both lungs in any creature, it's going to die. If I put a hole through the heart in any creature, pencil hole or not, it's going to die. Penetration does a lot to cause hemorrhage and bleeding out. So when somebody would do something like use a non-expanding round, a metal jacket round, because some bullets expand and some bullets are designed to stay together, and unless it's something that's very unstable and starts tumbling, it pretty much just goes straight through, and they say, well, it penciled through, it was a poor hit. Or it would have taken the animal out, or it would have taken the bad guy out. Hey, if our guys used them, and not just in the twenty two caliber, but in the seven, six, two, or thirty caliber overseas and they put guys down with them all the time, then a penetration does a lot of the killing. And there's still shock around the bullet channel. If you if you hunt, especially medium and large game, where you actually have to open things up and look at it, you cannot deny the shock value of the round penetrating, because it's the, the wound channel is far larger than the bullet ever was. So those are the two things working in conjunction, but we got to get inside to make this work. And I wanted to share something with you guys today, Um, This is by no means a scientific study, but I find it a very good uh, empirical evidence study. There's a guy from the Buckeye Firearms Association that did a study called an alternate look at handgun stopping power, and he just basically tracked, over a 10-year period, the results of every shooting he could find. Not laboratory analysis. Some guy got shot, what he got shot with, what the results were, and how it was reported. And... I want you to, I'm gonna open some eyes here with some mythology about, well, this round is so much more powerful than that round when it comes to what I just talked about. The round impacting, uh, the, the penetration and the surrounding tissue shock created when the penetration allows the round to begin to dump its, inter- its energy inside the target. Okay? Right? Uh, and these things all work together. So one of the rounds that is often considered to be a terrible round, just terrible for self-defense, you'd have to be an idiot to use this for self-defense, is the .22 uh, rimfire. And these are combined with shorts long and long rifle, with long rifle being the most powerful. Over this 10-year period, this gentleman recorded 154 people were shot with a 22 long rifle that he could find. Uh, 213 hits, so many people were shot more than once. The number of hits that were fatal, 34%. The average number of rounds until incapacitation, he defines incapacitation as the person was no longer capable of continuing what they were doing. They they went down or they collapsed or they gave up. Uh, 1.38 rounds. So the person had to be hit an average of one. So some people were hit once, some people were hit twice when you averaged it all out. Capacitation was 1.38 rounds. Percentage of people who were not incapacitated, these are people that were shot and were able to escape or continue their attack or what have you, 31% were not incapacitated even though uh, they were hit. Percentage of one-shot stops, so these are people who were hit once and they were incapacitated, 31%. Accuracy of head and torso hits: 76%. Percent actually incapacitated by one shot header torso hit sixty percent. So sixty percent of people that were hit with one shot from a twenty-two rim fire were incapacitated, six out of ten. Now that might sound low, but let's look at something that's considered a much, much better defense round. Very few people would make the case that the 9mm isn't a better defensive round than a .22 long rifle. Is it true? Again, this is not scientific, but it is field-based empirical evidence. Number of people shot, 456. So a lot more people were shot because it's a lot more popular. I guess a lot of this is thugs and gangbangers and stuff like that. Number of hits, 1,121. 1,121 hits. Number of hits that were fatal, 24%. Let me back up here a second. Number of hits fatal from the 22, 34%. From the 9mm, 24%. Average number of rounds until incapacitation, 2.45. Remember what the 22 was? 1.38. Percentage of people who were not incapacitated, 13%. Now, this is where the larger caliber did a better job. Remember, thirty-one percent were not incapacitated. So they were able to continue after being hit with the twenty-two, whereas only thirteen percent were not incapacitated. One shot stop percentage, thirty-four percent. That's only three percent higher than the twenty-two. Accuracy of head and torso hits, seventy-four percent versus seventy-six percent for the twenty-two. Very, very similar. Percentage of actually incapacitated by one shot. How many people hit with the nine millimeter? were incapacitated by a single shot. Forty-seven percent versus sixty percent from the twenty-two. Do you want to know why? Are you confused? Let me just run one more comparison for you, and uh I think it'll start to uh to maybe make some sense for you if we do this. 357 Magnum, that's a significant step up in power from the nine millimeter. Remember, they're the same caliber, same bullet diameter, but the three fifty seven has more power. Number of people shot 105. Number of hits 179. Percentage of hits that were fatal from a 357 magnum 34%. The exact same number as the 22. Interesting. Uh, average number of rounds until incapacitation 1.7 versus 1.38 from the 22. Interesting, isn't that? It was actually the 22 came ahead there. Percentage of people who were not incapacitated 9%. Nine percent of people shot with a 357 were able to continue, uh, whereas again, uh, people not incapacitated by the 22 is 31 percent. This is this is where we start to realize some things that killing power and stopping power are different. One shot stops number of people that were hit one time with the 357 and said either fell over and died or gave up in the fetal position or were just physically unable to continue. Forty four percent. Now one shot stops from the 22 thirty one percent. Uh, different, but not as different as you would think. Accuracy, 81% versus 76% in the 22. And percentage actually incapacitated by one shot. 61% were actually incapacitated by a single shot, where with the, uh, 22, it was 60%. So it's like only 2% difference. Uh, actually 61 versus 60. 1% difference. So what's going on here? Well, there's a couple things we have to think of when we get out of the world of ballistic skeleton and into the real world. When you're in a situation and somebody is threatening you and you're going to shoot them, okay, and you shoot them once and they don't stop, what do you do? You shoot them again. Well, as long as the person, these, these shootings are generally close range, and these heavier calibers, these larger diameter bullets, when the person takes an extra shot, or puts around in, it was generally speaking able to be more likely to incapacitate the person. But the fatality is remarkably similar. Again, percentage of hits that were fatal in a 357, 34%. In the 9mm, 24%, much lower. And in the 22, 34%. The exact same percentage of lethality from this little diminutive 22. Versus the 357 and the 357, and the 22's numbers are much closer than 9mm. What's going on there? Well, here's the reality: uh, a lot of these shootings with 9mm, again, there's a large number of them compared to the other ones. We can induce from the propensity to use 9mm uh, by thugs that a lot of these are street shootings. They buy the cheapest ammo they can get. That's 9mm ball or full metal jacket. It's a non-expanding round. It's high velocity. It penetrates, but it doesn't expand very well and it's a terrible, terrible option for self-defense. The numbers right here bear that out. I have no proof of that, but I guarantee you if you go to a good, a good hollow point expanding round in 9mm that dumps more of its energy, its numbers are going to look a lot better than when you're putting these ball rounds in. But what about the 22? It doesn't expand that much. 22s are made of basically pure lead. They're not jacketed at all. They deform a lot as they go through. They're very, very small, and they have a high sectional density. Sectional density, one of these complicated-sounding words, is the ability of a round to penetrate. So the little bitty twenty-two penetrates like the Dickens until it hits bone. It just keeps going and going and boring its way through. It's a low-velocity round. And there's, there's, there's two schools of thought on velocity and both of them are right depending on the situation. One is if I get something going really, really fast and it goes and it penetrates and goes through even one side and out the other, that the, the shock value as it goes through there is tremendous. And I create a very large wound channel from shock that expands out as that high velocity round goes through. But if the round is fragile and it hits, it will, it will disintegrate. It will break. I'll get to a point where it's so fast versus the, the integrity of the round, it begins to break up. Now, if it, if it goes into the middle of a target, like the center of a person's lungs and fragments, it does a massive amount of damage. But if it fragments on impact or shallow, I get a really bad looking wound, but it's not deep and it's less likely to be lethal. So that's one school of thought. The other school of thought is if the, the round is relatively heavy for the caliber. So it doesn't have to be heavier than somebody else's round, but heavy for the caliber. And it penetrates well, and it's at a moderate velocity, let's say 1,300, 1,500 feet per second, that it's going to penetrate really well, especially in soft tissue. And as it goes through there, it's going to begin to slow down. And it's going to tear its way through. And in spite of the fact that it seems to be very, very modest compared to a larger caliber, it's going to do a dramatic amount of damage as it passes through. And we can see this with the humble pellet gun, the pellet gun that you pump up like ten times, the old like daisies and crossman. If you take a pellet gun and you give it like one pump, you put a pellet in it, and you shoot it at a uh, you know an aluminum can sitting ten. 15 yards away, it'll generally hit that can, put a dent in it, it won't penetrate, and the can will fall over. Now we go to high velocity, we pump it up, and we shoot that can with 10 pumps as fast as that pellet will go. And that pellet just shoots through, the can doesn't even move, you think you missed it, you went a perfect hole through it. But if we pump it, let's say, four or five times, we have to play with the gun to find that sweet spot. When we shoot it, it'll knock the can over and fully penetrate it. If we find that exact balance point, when we look at that can, it looks like somebody shoved a big, giant dowel that was much bigger in diameter than that little 17-caliber pellet. Why? Because it tore through. It tore through. It's the difference between stabbing somebody with a sharp-pointed stick and jamming a stick of the same diameter through with no point. It's gonna actually do more damage because it's being shoved through and it's rough and it doesn't, it doesn't taper in any way. And that's what makes the 22 with soft lead so damn deadly. But if it's not in a place where it has the ability to do that damage, people are much more likely to not be incapacitated. So it has one of the highest percentages other than, uh, 25 auto is also on here. But it's actually quite lethal. And it makes you think when these rounds are accurate and multiple rounds are fired, it may be a lot better for defense than a lot of people get it credit for. I'm not ready to switch to it, but I carry a 45 let Let's look at a forty-five. Now, again, a lot of people are carrying hardball ammo. When I say hardball ammo, I mean full metal jacket, and those rounds are... Don't expand they don't dump their energy as well into the target and that may be hampering it because there's a lot of thugs that would get their hands on a 45 and do the same thing as they do with a nine millimeter but still it's a 45 for God's sakes number of people shot 20 uh, 200, 209 uh, versus 154 so they're fairly comparable number of hits 179 number of hits that were fatal 34 uh, percent I'm sorry I'm the wrong one again um, 436 hits uh, number of hits that were fatal 29 percent. Uh, that's less than a 22. Uh, which, which had 34% of hits were fatal. Average number of rounds until incapacitation, 2.8 versus 1.3. Number of people who were not incapacitated, this is the big difference. This is where these heavier calibers make better sense, as your job is to stop the attack, 14%. 14% were not incapacitated when they were shot by a 45. They were able to continue what they were doing versus almost a third with the 22. One stop shots. So how many people were hit one time with a 45 and they're done? 39%. Again, with the 22 was only 31%. It's not that dramatic as you would expect. Uh, percentage actually incapacitated by one shot. 51% uh, versus, again, 60%. The 22 actually had more people incapacitated by a single shot. So, that doesn't mean that, that again, the twenty two is the greatest thing since sliced bread, but it should change. The reason I do this is so that when you're listening to some clown behind the counter of a sporting goods store tell you, well, with the 9mm, you know, you you get a little more room and variance in where you hit, but with that three eighty, you you've got to be a little bit more accurate if you want it to do its job. They're an idiot. They're a complete idiot. They don't know what they're talking about and we can look at that one real quick before i move on let's look at the 380 versus the 9mm let's just look at a couple of things percentages of hits that were fatal from the 9mm 24% from the 380 which you had you know, you got to be tighter 29% average number of rounds to incapacitation uh from the 9mm 2.45 from the 380 1.76 percentage of people not incapacitated by the 380 16 Percentage of people not incapacitated by the 9mm, 13, uh, uh, 6, it was 16 for the 380, 13 for the 9. So the 9 came ahead in that one, and that may be the more critical, but, but not by much. One stop shots, uh, from the 380, 44%. One shot, stop shots from the 9mm, 34%. Percentage actually incapacitated by a single shot to the head or torso, 62% of people hitting the head and torso with the 380, one stop shots, where with the with the 9 mm one stop shots were 47%. Now again I'm going to tell you that the facts are that most people using a 380 for defensive purposes have more brains and are more likely to have an expanding round versus hardball and that may be part of it here but it's not cut and dry like we want to believe that bigger is always better interesting isn't it So um, hopefully that helps a little bit with uh power what I call power mythology that any time that your body is penetrated or a body is penetrated by anything, uh, that body has a problem. It's going to be a bad day. I want to talk a little bit now about Two terminologies I've used a little bit up till now, but they're very important if you really want to demystify all of this stuff with all these different calibers and this new caliber that and, uh, this new super round this and, you know, that's an outdated round now and it, it, it's all nonsense. And those are ballistic coefficient and sectional density. Sectional density I've already talked about. Sectional density is the ability of, of something to penetrate If everything else is equal, so the speed or velocity of impact is the same and the object being impacted is the same. So if we look at something like, and here's a great way to understand how things can be almost identical and totally different sectional densities. Let's say you have one pound of lead in your hand and that one pound of lead is shaped like a ball and you throw that one pound of lead at a wall. And it go maybe let's say it's drywall, and there's several sheets of it set up a couple inches apart, and you throw it as hard as you can at that wall. It'll smash through the first one, probably the second one. I don't know how far it'll go before it stops, but it'll go through a certain number of levels where it'll lose the velocity and lose its ability to penetrate, hit the last one, put a mark in it, and fall on the ground. Go pick it up and melt it down and shape it into a rod with a point at the end. But it still weighs exactly one pound. Throw it at the exact same speed and it will penetrate more layers because now in a different configuration it has a greater sectional density. And this is why bullets that are long and heavy for their caliber, have high sectional densities. This is why certain calibers have an almost mythological component to them, like a cult following. A good example is the 6.5 by 55 millimeters. So 6.5 millimeter, uh, Swedish uh, Mauser round, 140 grains, really high sectional density, uh, moderate velocity. So the bullet doesn't fragment a lot. It expands some, but it does that sweet spot, 2,600 feet per second magic kind of formula that I believe in where people take this little 6.5 millimeter, which is about, uh, what is it, like 25-ish caliber, a little bit. uh, Let me get that one for you just to be absolutely sure. Oh, it's 26 caliber now that I'm thinking about it because the 260 Remington is our equivalent of that old cartridge, Um, and it just penetrates like the dickens, and it's killed more moose than any other round on the planet because the Swedes like to shoot moose. They've got moose over there, too. So this great big animal... Granted, they're not as big as our Alaskan moose, but they're big animals. They're you know horse-sized animals, and they're taken out with this round that's considered diminutive by a lot of people, but it's because it has that high sectional density. And again, if if the round goes in the right place and it penetrates vital organs like the heart, the lungs, the liver, things that will bleed out rapidly, you're going to have great incapacitation and great lethality. So that sectional density is something that's key to understand. And the reality is that a lot of these calibers that people use for self-defense have very poor sectional densities, very poor ability to penetrate. Nine millimeter, it's a short fat round compared to something like let's say uh, a round in a thirty oh six or a three oh eight a thirty caliber long bullet that long bullet's not just the higher velocity it's a big part of it because there's more energy but it's that longer bullet that more dart like shape that has a greater ability to penetrate. Now something that goes along with that but is different is called ballistic coefficient. I can give you a great big dictionary definition. I'm not going to because you won't remember and you won't care. The easiest way to understand ballistic coefficient, how well can the object fly? That's it. How aerodynamic is it? How stable is it? How well will it do? So now, let's do the same experiment with um, the lead ball. If we take a lead ball and we go outside now we're a shot putter, we throw that one pound lead ball as far as we can, it will go so far. And if we turn it into another javelin-shaped object and we throw it with the same force, it's more aerodynamic than a sphere, it will go further. So a lot of times, when people are trying to hand load and they're trying to tweak that one extra grain of powder, can I go to that maximum load, and get that extra 100 feet per second out of a rifle cartridge, if they simply found a bullet with a slightly higher ballistic coefficient they would get a bigger performance upgrade. That object will be flatter in its trajectory. Trajectory is when you shoot something or throw something, how long does it go before it starts to drop? And here's the answer. If you have a, a line of sight that's leveled to the ground, so you have a rifle and you level it out with a, with a spirit level, an advice so that barrel is absolutely 100% level. So if I took a laser beam out of there and I measured it and I was on dead level surfaces a 100 yards away, that dot would be exactly where uh, the rifle muzzle was on the other side. And it's dead level. You pull the trigger, the bullet begins to drop the second, the microsecond, the micromillisecond it comes out of the barrel. So people say, well, then why does the round hit... And get higher and then lower. So you might be dead on at 100 yards, a little bit high at 150, and then back dead on at 200 with, that's probably never gonna happen. But just as an example that's easy to understand, you know, why is that? Why, why is it lower here, higher there, and then back sighting again? Doesn't that look like it goes up and comes back down? It does, but it's because your barrel's not level when it's sighted that way, it's angled slightly up. So the bullet is going up from the beginning when you sight your, your rifle in. And eventually it reaches a point where the fall uh, comes off of, of, of the rise and begins to plummet back to Earth. And something with a high ballistic coefficient is flatter in that flight than something with a low ballistic coefficient. And with those two pieces of information, this isn't really that big a deal when we talk about handguns, but when we look at rifles and long-range performance, they're actually a lot more important then which round can I get an extra 100 feet per second out of? The components that the round is made up with, the bullet that the round is is using, is often a greater impact on the trajectory of the round, and we can get improved performance just by selecting different components. It's not that important, but it's interesting to understand. And if we understand simply that longer bullets generally have more sectional density and a higher ballistic coefficient, we start to understand why sometimes it's better to use a heavier bullet for a long-range target. Because it has that higher ballistic coefficient, it's going to retain its energy longer, and it's going to deliver more power you know, 300, 400, 500 meters out. Okay. Um, now I want to talk about how a lot of new rounds and how a lot of uh, rifle rounds specifically come into existence. Most of them are based on something else. So I think that it's like really interesting when people look at something like a 030 and say, well, I prefer a 270. And when you really look at it, what you have with a 030 is a 30 caliber round with a cartridge case. Uh, we won't get into why it's called a 030 today, but just know that that's what we have. And the .270 is basically we take that case, and we do what's called neck it down. So we simply basically use the same case, the same parent case. We neck it down a twenty-seven caliber and now we get a smaller diameter bullet that can be pushed to a higher velocity because of a lighter bullet being, using the relative same amount of powder or charge. And then I can create something like the 2506 by going down to 25 caliber. I can create the 280 Remington. And where does that come from? 3006 necked to 28 caliber. And I can go the other direction. There's uh, something called the 35 Whalen. That is the 3006 necked up to 35 caliber. And then there's the 33806. Which is the 3006 necked up to 33 caliber. And it's been done with just about every successful cartridge has a whole list of children. So the 3006 has all of those children. There's a few more, but they're a little bit more obscure, so I'll leave them out. Then, one day, the US government and its NATO allies decided they liked 30 caliber, but they wanted a round with less recoil, almost as much power as the 3006, and they wanted it to be a little bit lighter and be able to carry more rounds per soldier per unit. And remember, the military does things in you know, units of millions. So a small savings on weight is a big deal when you're you know, carrying millions and millions of rounds uh, with trucks and trains and airplanes and individual soldiers and, and all of that jazz. So somebody decided, well, why don't we just start with what we have, the 3006 case, and shorten it. And they shortened it down and they basically made a shorter version of the 3006. And friends, that's the 762 NATO. And with a slight variance in the thickness of the case, and this is why you don't put your 762 NATO MIL Syrup rounds in your, your 308 Winchester Model 70, but you can go the other way with them, uh, is the 308 Winchester. That's all the 308 Winchester is. A 306 shortened down, even the neck angles where, it, where it, it bottlenecks down are almost the same, a little bit different there. And then people look at it and go, well, how the hell can that shorter cartridge be almost the same? And in some some weights of bullets, it actually is more. In some weights of bullets, the 306 6 is a little bit more powerful. And then when you get up to certain weights of bullets that are too heavy, then the three oh eight kind of loses performance. But how can it even run neck and neck with things like 150, 180-grain bullets? 165 grain bullets. How can it how can it be this you know almost as powerful using like obviously there's less powder in there there's less space. When you reduce space and you put an explosion explosive charge in a reduced space you increase pressure. Even if it's slightly smaller of a charge. So the 30, 308 works at a higher pressure so it's able to use less powder to get to an equivalent velocity and this is how we get less perceived Recoil. When you fire a cartridge and you feel the reaction, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So you have the weight of the bullet plus the weight of the powder being shoved down the barrel. When you shoot a three oh eight, there's slightly less powder, slightly less charge, slightly less ejected weight, a slightly less perceived recoil, though it's not as significant as I think the goal really was, and I think some people overplay it. I think it's, they're, they're both pretty significant. I don't notice a lot of difference in firing one versus the other. But that's where the 308 came from. Now, why is that important? Because then we look at, where does all of this other stuff come from? Where does the 243 come from? 308 cartridge next to the 24 caliber. 260 Remington? 308 cartridge next to 26 caliber. Or 6.5 millimeter. Uh, it is the same number. Remember, the caliber and the millimeters are just two ways of measuring the same thing. Uh, 308, uh, is also the 7mm 08. So that's a 308 necked to 7mm. And then we have something like the 358 Winchester, which is the 308 necked up to 35 caliber. And most of the things out there are some variants of that. In the Magnum world, we'll have things like the 300 Winchester, and then people started playing with that and coming up with all these different versions of of that of that case in different calibers. And all it is is shortening the case or in some case lengthening the case and changing the necking on the case to hold a different caliber of either larger or smaller size. And most of what gets done to create new things are just really taking what's called wildcatting to commercial. So before there was the 33806 There was the .333 OK. It was Elmer Keith and some other guy OK OKE or something like that. They used a .33 caliber. It was a .33 instead of .333 instead of .338. Well, then the .338 Winchester came out, and .338 caliber bullets became widely available and very well used. And I think it was actually .323 was what Elmer Keith and his buddies did, and they called it the 33, uh, anyway, uh, when it was really more of a 32. I'm not sure on that one, but when Remington decided to, to kind of bring that out, was it Rem, I don't remember who it was, uh, but somebody decided to bring out the 33806 as a commercial round, they went to that 38, 338 caliber bullet because there was lots of choices. And the same thing with the 35 Whalen. They went to it with a 35 caliber bullet, stuck it in there, and made it commercial. It all starts out with some guy that's not happy. I just want something different in my own. So this new cartridge comes out, and they start. They get a custom gunsmith, and they go out there and they make their own. And then when those things take off. A lot of times commercial interests will take over and will start making it commercially. Uh, generally a little bit different than the guy that wildcatted it. They'll put all their bean head, propeller heads together and try to get the most efficiency possible based on the angles of the case and things like that. But that's where these things come from. They're not really new. And you start to realize things that, like, well, what's the difference then between, you know, the 308 and the 3006? And it's not much. And as long as the caliber's the same, in most instances, for practical purposes, for big game hunting, it's not that big a deal. Yeah, the guy with the 300 Weatherby Magnum can shoot further than the guy with the 3006, assuming that the guy is capable of maximizing the effectiveness of the 3006 in the first place. Can he shoot 400 yards and be accurate? If he can, then maybe that advantage is worse the extra recoil, the weight, and the expense. But in most instances, for most people, especially in the eastern woods, if you're east of the Mississippi, man, you're not shooting 500 yards at anything, unless you're on some farm or or whatever, and then learn to get closer is the way I feel. So that's where all these new rounds come from. Um, I also want to talk about why choosing a round is not as hard as people try to make it. When we really looked at the real numbers with handgun rounds, what we found is that Basically, if you shoot the right place with the right ammo, that everything does a good job. And if you shoot the wrong place with the wrong ammo, then things don't do a good job. So when somebody says to me, I really can't choose between the 380 and the 9mm, when I look at actual numbers of people shot, I go, it ain't really that important. What gun works better for you? What gun works better for you? Because if you're looking like I want a bread and you know nine uh, millimeter, like the military carries, it's heavy, it's big, it's bulky, and in some clothing, it's not very comfortable to carry. Well, the, the compact Kel-Tec 380 that you carry is more useful to you in a self-defense situation in the middle of a park than the nine mm sitting at home or the 44 Magnum sitting at home. You know? Or the, the, the four hundred fifty four Casole or the fifty caliber machine gun is useless to you if it's not where you are. So instead of like really obsessing about these calibers, what you really need to look for is what gun can you carry well? What gun are you comfortable with? What gun has a platform that you're most comfortable working the action, taking it off safe, that you feel confident with it? Go rent guns and shoot them. Which guns can you shoot better? Because you're better off with three round center mass out of a 380 than you are with three rounds in, you know, to the ground with a 45. Or not having it at all because it was heavy and I didn't feel like taking it with me that day or what have you. And he will say to me, Jack, why do you carry a 45? And it's because I love the 1911 frame. I don't carry it because I think the 45 is the round to carry. I carry it because from the time I was about 9 years old, I was shooting the 1911. So when I pick that frame up, so I could carry a 1911 in 9mm, I could carry a 1911 frame in anything, but I love the 1911 with the 45. i I'm very confident in it. I'm very confident in my ability. But does that mean that would be what I would always carry? No, because there's times where a full-frame 1911 just isn't a great carry gun. It's not comfortable, it doesn't feel right, and there's other things you can carry in those situations. And when somebody starts telling you stupid things like, well, now you've got to really make sure you... You always have to make sure with anything that you put the rounds where it's necessary to stop the attack. A bigger hole won't matter in the wrong place or in the wall behind the guy. It's not going to matter. Now, here's where that starts to change just a little bit. If I have a good expanding round that does a good job of dumping its energy and does a good job of tearing its way through a target, and I shoot an animal or a bad guy, and I clip the edge of a lung, like I'm a little high or I'm a little low or I'm a little far back, and I get the vitals, but I get the edge of the vitals. The round that does more dumping of energy, more shock value, and again, the shock only comes with the penetration, will damage more of that organ that I've kind of clipped than the round that just like shoots right through and and doesn't really dump well. And when that happens, the rounds that do a better job of dumping that energy in and creating a larger wound channel are definitely a little more forgiving if the shot's not perfect but if it's completely wrong it's not going to matter. You know, and it, it, there's things like if you hit a spine, the, the 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 whatever you're shooting goes down. You hit spine, you hit neck. It, it, it it's it's like so you hit head. Even if you don't get penetration, uh, a glancing blow to the head often will you know stun and knock out a person. Because that kinetic energy that people want to tell you is not real is real. It's just a matter where it is and how it's delivered and what kind of transfer of that energy there is. But none of this stuff is hard. I hope I have, you know, now that I'm I'm getting toward the end of it, I'm almost afraid that I maybe made things a little more confusing. But hopefully if you you are confused, you can listen to this again and understand that it's just not complicated. All the calibers and, and millimeters and everything like that are just numbers. All they are is a diameter. That's it. There's nothing more to it than that. And then velocities and and, and all this other ballistics and stuff like that. It's interesting, and if you start to study it, it's really kind of cool. And you can start to tweak things, and you can start to look at things, and you you can start to see, yeah, there is an advantage with heavier bullets. Uh, If you're going to be someone living up in northern Maine that might draw a moose permit to a thirty oh six over a three oh eight, maybe. But it's not huge. But, yeah, it's there. And with lighter bullets, they're ballistically twins, and it doesn't really matter in which... Which do you prefer in your bolt action, a short action or a long action? Do you like your rifle with a short action? or that's, that's it. It's really what it comes down to. When you're, when you're looking for something for home defense, um, I, I, I will state still, you're probably better off with a simple shotgun. A simple shotgun with, like, normal number four buck or double O buck or even four shot or, or, you know, or two shot in there. I mean, when you, you know, Dave Canterbury, I had him on, he says, I keep a six shot in my house, a, six, a shotgun with six shot in my house. And I said, you know, I used to recommend that, but I looked at some actual studies that it doesn't seem to do a really good job of penetrating incapacitation. capacitation. He goes, well, if you shoot them in a the groin, it will. And he's got a point. Um, but for me, a shotgun with buck is probably the best Thing for home defense. We carry handguns when we have no practical way to carry rifles or shotguns. Because rifles and shotguns, with everything I've told you today, you should understand now, they generally penetrate better, they generally deliver more shock value, and because of that, they have greater lethality and greater stopping power. In most instances, additionally, the biggest reason I can tell you to use a carbine or a shotgun for home defense is they point more naturally and you'll have higher hit ratios. Because the one thing I want to leave you with here is the guy that did this study did not leave, um, he did not leave out the, uh, the rifle on all this. And uh what he did was uh, I wish he would have done shotgun. Oh, he did shotguns. Let me let me look at those. So, if people shot with centerfire rifles, 126 number of hits 176. So, uh very very highly accurate. Um, percentage of hits that were fatal, 68%. 68% fatal. That's higher than anything in the handgun world. Average number of rounds to capacitation 1.4. A uh, number of people who were not incapacitated. So how many people were able to continue? Only 9%. One-stop shots, 58%. Accuracy to the head and torso, 81% of the time that somebody fired a rifle at somebody, they hit them in the head or the torso. Percentage actually incapacitated by a single shot to the head or torso, 80% of people hit with center fire rifles, and that's all of them across the board. On shotgun, 146 people shot. 178 hits. Percentage of hits that were fatal, 65%. Almost as high as the rifle. Average number of rounds to incapacitation, (laughs) 1.2. Percentage of people who were not incapacitated, 12%. And I'm going to tell you, since it's all shotguns, uh, there's a big difference between a guy shot with birdshot and a guy shot with you know, a slug or buckshot. Uh, One-shot stops percentage, 58%, same as the rifle. Accuracy to head and torso, 84% of the time. Uh, percentage actually incapacitated by one shot, to head or torso, 86%. So rifle, uh, people hit with one shot, head or torso, 80% stopped immediately, 86% with the shotgun. Blows away everything. And the accuracy is, is generally speaking, higher than most other things. And that's because it's just more natural for someone to point and hit with a rifle or shotgun, especially when we're looking at home defense ranges. Again, this, this fantasy that some people have about being the sniper or whatever, and, and you know maybe for hunting deer, or maybe that's actually your job. You are a law enforcement sharpshooter. You're an actual sniper. Then that, that all applies. But you don't defend yourself by shooting somebody 500 yards away. That's an offensive maneuver, and there's times for it. And it might be being used to defend somebody else, but you, the civilian, it ain't going to happen. It just isn't. Um, and and what we need to worry about is self-defense ranges. And inside your home, go to your house and, and find the place you can see the furthest distance inside your home, and that's it. And then realize that's probably the worst place if you know somebody's breaking into your home for you to be. You're probably better off taking cover somewhere and using the element of surprise by the person who's not sure how your house is laid out and doesn't know where you are and using that opportunity to incapacitate the intruder. And when we put all that together, rifles and shotguns just do a much better job than handguns. So it's why I recommend it and it's why most people that teach at the professional level for self-defense training would tell you the same thing. I've had James Yeager on, says the same thing. I've had Frank Sharp on, uh, he says the same thing. They have some differences in the way they train and the way they do things, but on that, they agree 100%, and so do I. And people that say things like, I'm worried about my wife, and I want her... Your wife can learn... To, dude, And unless she has no arms, your wife can learn to shoot a 20-gauge shotgun damn well, and it will do a better job than a 9mm or a 40 or anything else you think that's going to work for that particular purpose and it's more versatile. Uh, So I want you to really consider for the home defense scenario shotguns and rifles with the caveat being whatever platform is most comfortable for the shooter that allows them to do their job more consistently is probably the best choice. And uh, that's a great way to make your final decisions when it comes down to it Which gun lets you operate quickly, efficiently, with reloading, with malfunctions, with everything, makes you confident, and you can make your hits quickly in those high-stress situations? That's the one you want for self-defense. When it comes to the field, what can you do? uh, what, what, What platform gives you the greatest ability to hit that deer or knock that squirrel out of a tree? And that's the platform for you. Because I'll tell you one thing about ballistics and ammunition. Every single one of them is potentially lethal. That's why we always have to treat them with respect. And the idea that something is a mouse gun is just, is just ridiculous, unless it actually is a mouse gun. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days. You know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget. Are what we eat? I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. If the price we pay, I guess and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.